Now, if you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 141, Psalm 141, that's going to be our passage for study this morning as we continue to look at various psalms this summer. And if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word while I read that passage to us. Psalm 141, a psalm of David. Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Do not let me feast on their delicacies. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now, my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words, for they are pleasing. As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Amen. This is God's word for us. Please be seated. As we think about this psalm together this morning, it's really a psalm that is focused on helping us respond correctly when we face unjust suffering, seasons of unjust suffering in our lives. Well, if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you know that it is a very difficult thing not to sin with your words. After all, we all say a lot each and every day. The average person, one study said, speaks something like 15,000 words per day, and among all those words, there are many instances of sin. There are angry words, and there are complaining words, there are bitter words, there are thoughtless words. And so James chapter 3, verse 2 says that if anyone is able to bridle his tongue, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. It's also true that our struggle with our tongues, it kind of ramps up when we face additional pressure in life, right? When we go into seasons of stress and difficulty, the temptation to sin with our words also ramps up. So stress at, at work can tempt our hearts to overflow with complaining, we grumble about our situation or perhaps that difficult boss that seems to have it out for us. The difficulty of parenting can lead us to impatience in the way that we speak to our children. If it does not do that to you, please come help me and teach me because I need to grow. Watching the news with its endless parade of sensationalized horrors, that's what it is, it can tempt us to ugly outbursts of anger day by day, the stress that it puts on our hearts. But perhaps, the, perhaps it's hardest to keep our tongues under control when we are suffering unjustly, when we are being sinned against and we have done nothing to provoke that sin, right? The temptation to lash out at our persecutors with our tongues, it feels almost overwhelming. After all, we can't do anything physically, but we want to respond in some way and the temptation to use our tongues is so strong. And really, really, that's the situation that was facing the psalmist in Psalm 141. He's under pressure. He's under attack. He's facing unjust suffering. 
But in the midst of that situation, he wants to respond rightly. And in particular, you notice in verse 3, he wants to respond rightly so that he does not sin with his lips. He wants to go through the trial without sinning with his words. And of course, he's not only concerned about words. He wants to honor the Lord in his life with his actions as well. Psalm 141 is an important psalm for us in our day because it is increasingly difficult to live for King Jesus in the public sphere without facing suffering. That's simply true. Our culture is increasingly hostile to a Judeo-Christian worldview, in particular to a Judeo-Christian morality, the morality that the Bible very, very clearly teaches, the morality that God himself gave us to live by. And so, Christians on college campuses feel increasing pressure to conform, and they face punishment of one kind or another if they do not conform, and that is increasing in the case in workplaces as well. As Christians are trying to figure out how to navigate all of the inclusion and all of the different kind of things that are being put forward, they also face punishment if they refuse to go along. So we need, by God's grace, to learn how we can respond rightly, how we can respond in a Christ-like way to pressures that we may and probably will face in our lives. Because after all, all of us at some point will experience unjust suffering of one kind or another. And here the psalmist gives us a good example of what it looks like to be faithful to God even in the midst of facing unjust suffering. So if you look at the kind of the superscript above the psalm, you see that this is a psalm of David. So this is a psalm of David. We aren't sure when he wrote the psalm. Many commentators believe that he wrote this psalm during that that long decade when he was fleeing for his life from King Saul, because during that time, for many years, he was facing unjust suffering from King Saul and those with him. Now, I think that's very likely. Uh, Very clearly, as you read through the psalm, it's just very clear that the psalmist is facing opposition and unjust suffering at the hands of those who are very powerful, uh, who can hurt him. And so he cries out to the Lord for rescue. And the prayer that he prays in Psalm 141, again, it is such a helpful prayer. Really, what is it? It's a prayer for grace. He's asking God to give him grace so that he responds to the suffering in such a way that, that his temper and his tongue are under control so that he does not sin with his lips, so that he does not sin in his heart, so that he does not sin with his actions against those who are seeking to wrong him. And it shows us how we should respond when we face similar trials. We're going to study the psalm this morning using three points, which together really give us, I think, a faithful response, what a faithful response looks like when we face unjust suffering. So if you're taking notes, there'll be three points this morning, really kind of focused on this theme of facing unjust suffering. So when facing unjust suffering, first, turn to God. Turn to God. We'll see that in verses 1 to 2. Second, seek to please God. We'll see that in verses 3 to 6. And third, pray for protection. And we'll see that when we look at verses 7 to 10. Let's look at that first point together then this morning. Turn to God. We'll look at verses 1 and 2, but John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, it contains a wonderful scene where, where Christian is at the house beautiful, and while he's at the house beautiful, he is given the weapons and he's given the armor that he's going to need uh, as he goes through this journey to the celestial city. And there at the house beautiful, he receives the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the belt of truth and the gospel shoes. But along with all of those weapons and armor, he also receives a weapon called all prayer. All prayer. 
Now, what is all prayer? Well, all prayer is really the, the attitude of prayer that we're commanded to have in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, where Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. All prayer is really an attitude of the heart that leads us at all times to be ready to come to God and to praise Him, and to confess sin, and to ask Him to help us. And verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 41 shows us that praying at all times includes praying when we are facing seasons of unjust suffering. So look at verses 1 to 2. Here the psalmist turns to God in all prayer. He says, Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense and the raising of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Notice the the words in verse 1. Notice the intensity with which the psalmist cries out to God. He is crying out to God for help. He says, I call on you. Hurry to help me. There's urgency here. The psalmist is being hard-pressed. He is under attack. He's feeling the weight of this. And so he goes to God in prayer. He turns to God in prayer. Why? Because he needs rescue, and he knows that God is the one who can rescue him. But now look at verse 2. There's kind of a difference of emphasis in verse 2. Here, in this verse, the psalmist begins to speak a prayer, but now he speaks of his prayer as worship. Listen to the way he speaks of it. He says, May my prayer be set before you as incense. The raising of my hands is the evening offering. Now, remember that David and his followers, they were on the run from Saul. Uh, They were far away from the tabernacle where the sacrifices were offered. They'd been commanded to offer sacrifices, but they were unable to worship God in the way that God had commanded because they were under threat of their life. Still, David wanted God to hear his prayers. And so he cries out to God, asking God to hear his prayers. But it's more than that. It's really a bold request. David wanted the Lord to regard his prayers just as much as the Lord regarded the appointed morning and evening sacrifices at the holy place. Here, David is turning to the Lord in this season of unjust suffering, something we should do. Now, let me make four brief observations, one application before we move on. The first observation is that because we live in a fallen world, we will face unjust suffering in this life. Perhaps a former friend will turn against us and someone we thought loved us will instead turn against us and slander us and attack us. Some of us have experienced that. Perhaps we'll face hostility on the campus or in the office for following Jesus. It's possible one day we may face more intense forms of persecution, the kind of persecution experienced by our brothers and sisters this morning in places like Nigeria and North Korea and Northern India. David faced unjust suffering. The Lord Jesus faced unjust suffering, and we will face unjust suffering as well. A second observation, we need the Lord's help to live the Christian life well. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that's true. You you need the Lord to help you if you're going to live the Christian life well. It is particularly true that you need the Lord's help when you're facing a season of unjust suffering. Why? Because at times, we feel quite overwhelmed. We can feel quite disoriented, not sure where to turn, not sure what side is up, not sure what we are supposed to do. We are easily, listen, tempted to repay evil with evil. You know, that's a command. Don't do that. Don't repay evil with evil. But, oh, the temptation is so strong, and you feel so righteous if you do it. The temptation is great to sin. We can easily give in to despair. Those are the challenges that the psalmist is facing in Psalm 141. And humans could do nothing to deliver him. 
He looks around. His men are with him. His, his men cannot rescue him. There's no one who can help him, but he knows that God can help him. And so he turns to God for the help that he needs. And that's such a good model for us. Why? Because all too often we look to other places for help. We look to other people. We look to our own resources, perhaps our intellect or our finances. Sometimes we look at at means of escape that kind of get us away from the pain of what we're suffering for just a season. We look for other helps instead of what? We should first look to the Lord. This is what the psalmist does. He looks to the Lord first. If we're going to live the Christian life well at all times, and particularly during seasons of unjust suffering, well, we need to look to the Lord for help. A third observation, prayer is a spiritual sacrifice to God. If you remember, when we were studying the book of Revelation together, and we got to Revelation chapter 5, John there, he saw a vision of the heavenly throne room. And in the throne room, he saw, he saw a, a vessel with incense in it, and it was being offered to God in worship. And what was that incense? What did it represent? It represented the prayers of the saints. Now consider that that David uses precisely the same imagery in verse 2. May my prayer be set before you as incense. What is this? It's a reminder that our prayers are a spiritual act of worship, a spiritual sacrifice to God. Through our prayers, we present ourselves to God to worship Him, to confess our sins, uh, to humble ourselves before Him and make requests, to praise Him for who He is. From beginning to end, prayer is a spiritual sacrifice. It is an act of worship. And that means when we engage in prayer, we should engage in prayer with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls. It is an act of worship that demands that we be engaged and thoughtful about what we're doing. A fourth observation, the Lord is gracious. Now think about it again. David is on the run. He's unable to worship the Lord in the way that the Lord had commanded in terms of coming and offering appropriate sacrifices there at the tabernacle. He could not offer the sacrifices the law prescribed. But notice that did not help the Lord or did not stop the Lord from hearing David's request. Uh, No, still the Lord heard his request. And of course, we know that the Lord actually did answer David's request and brought him deliverance. Why did the Lord do that? Because he's gracious. He did that because he's kind. When we we can't serve the Lord as faithfully as we would want to, as we desire to, even, even in his kindness, he receives those desires as acceptable acts of worship. And he rewards us for them. Why? Because we serve a gracious God. One application to take away from this is that when we pray, we should be mindful of whom we're addressing. We should think about who it is we are speaking to. I get this from the the first word of verse 1, Lord, that's the the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Here David calls the Lord by his covenant name. David knows who he is addressing. And notice in verse 1 and 2 that he addresses the Lord reverently. And we should do the same. When we pray, we should remember who we are talking to, that he's the eternal one, that he's the, the alpha and the omega, that he is the mighty God. And that should impact the way we come to him, right? It means that we should stop and think about what we're doing and thinking about the privilege that it is to be able to come into the presence of God at all, much less to come into the presence of God to make requests of this noble king and to think that he hears us. Ari Torrey was an evangelical leader of the early 20th century, and he spoke about the impact it made on his prayer life 
when he really realized what prayer was, this is a slightly longer quote, but I think it's worth reading. Ari Tori said, I was brought up to pray. I was taught to pray so early in life that I have not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Nevertheless, prayer was largely a matter of form. There was little real thought of God and no real approach to God. And even after I was converted, yes, even after I had entered the ministry, prayer was largely a matter of form. But the day came when I realized what real prayer meant, realized that prayer was having an audience with God, actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has been not merely a duty, but a privilege. One of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? Now, I find those words convicting. But I also find them hope-giving. Why? Because we can, by God's grace, grow to understand more what it means to pray and, and to whom it is that we're praying so that we can pray better, more reverently, that we can approach God in a manner that's worthy of him and so receive not only those good gifts that he gives, but the, but the blessing of just being in his presence. Just being in his presence. What a gift that is. So you look at verse 1 to 2, we see that when we face unjust suffering, we must turn to God. Second point this morning, seek to please God. Now we mentioned earlier that when we're wronged by others, one of our first responses is to want to lash out against the one who's harming us. And if we can't do it, we want others to do it. We become like James and John who, who ask Jesus if Jesus wants them to call down fire from heaven in order to consume the Samaritan village because the village did not receive Jesus. But do you notice that that's not where the psalmist starts in the psalm? Notice that the psalmist's first concern is not his enemies. Notice that the psalmist's first concern is his own heart, the condition of his own heart before God. That's what he is most concerned about. In the midst of unjust suffering, he was focused on pleasing the Lord with his words and with his heart and with his action. Look at verses three to six. Lord, set a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the doors of my lips. Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with evildoers. Do not let me feast on their delicacies. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words, for they are pleasing." As you look at these verses, it's clear that David's first concern was his own heart, his own standing before God, his own personal holiness. He wanted to please God. Uh, the psalmist wanted to be holy. Uh, he wanted to have wisdom, and he very clearly opposed those who were doing wrong. Let's look at those one at a time. First, the, the psalmist, in the midst of unjust suffering, he wanted to be holy, right? You see that in verses 3 and 4. There, in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist really makes three requests, which when you put them together, all speak of a life of holiness. He wants his heart to be right before the Lord in terms of his words, what he says, in terms of his heart, his inner man, who he is on the inside, and in terms of his actions that others could see. Look at verse 3. 
The psalmist says, Lord, set a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. As we said before, when we are suffering unjustly, it is so hard for us not to want to speak back, to to yell at, to shout at those who are wrongly attacking us. But notice the psalmist wanted to avoid sinning with his lips, and so he prays and he asks God, the omnipotent God, to be the one who would guard his lips so that he does not sin with his lips. We need to pray also that God's grace would help us avoid sinning with our lips. We should, we should really ask the, the Holy Spirit to put a muzzle on our mouths if we're going to sin. I mean, I don't, some, I don't even know if I'm going to sin at times. Just, Lord, please help me not say something unkind, ungracious. Please put a muzzle on my mouth so that I don't sin against you or sin against this person. If we do that, by God's grace, we will be like Jesus. What was Jesus like when he suffered unjustly? Well, he didn't sin with his lips. That's what we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Josh read that for us earlier. Jesus did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I love these words here in 1 Peter. Why? Because they give us this really interesting and and impactful glimpse into what was happening as Christ endured the suffering of the cross and even endured the suffering silently so that we might be saved. It takes us to the gospel, right? The Bible tells us some hard truths about ourselves. Uh, It tells us that we're created by God who's good, who's loving, who is life himself, the one who wanted to have a relationship with us. That's what we were created for. We were not created to try to find as much pleasure as we possibly could before we become too old to be able to enjoy it anymore. That's not what we're made for. We are made to have a relationship with God. That's what we were created for. But you see, we were born sinful and separated from God. So that from our earliest moments, it did not feel natural to want to put God at the center of our lives. No, what feels natural and normal is I want to express myself. I want to do what I want to do. Friend, you have to understand that desire is at the very heart of sin that leads you to stiff arm God and indeed has led everyone in this room and everyone in the world to stiff arm God and say, not your will be done in my life, but my will be done in my life. That is the heart of sin. And that's a problem because that feels right to us and we pursue it. We go after that. And as we go after it, what happens? Day after day after day, we heap up condemnation before the Lord who is life. The one who is sustaining our lives even at that moment. And left to ourselves, because God is holy and we're not holy, there is no way that we can make up for our sins. There's no way we can be kind enough. There's no way we can be generous enough. There's no way we can be religious enough in order to ingratiate ourselves to the the Holy One. No, we are dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no hope for any man, woman, boy, or girl to be able to make themselves acceptable to God on the basis of how they have lived. Friend, the standard is perfection, and none of us have done it. The good news, the glory of the gospel The glory that this book is written to tell us is that God himself took it upon himself to do what we could not do. Uh, The Father sent in this world the Son, the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus did precisely what we should have done. He perfectly loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. And when the time came, because his mission was to die, that is to take the penalty of sin against the people, against God's people, 
when that time came for him to die, he was willing to suffer. And think about what it meant. It meant that they struck him in the face. It meant that they stripped him naked. It meant that they put a, 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 a crown of thorns on his head, that they nailed him to a cross. And when he's on a cross, you think that's enough. It's not. They rail against him and say, hey, if you're God, prove it. He could not prove it without damning all of us. And so he didn't because he's a God of grace. He endured how? Silently. So that we might be saved. And oh, friends, that's the Savior that we need. Oh, friend, that's the Savior that you need this morning. If you don't have a, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the Savior you need, this one who is willing to suffer unjustly so that you might be saved. And the Bible says if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Him, put your trust in Him and Him alone, you will be saved, even this morning. And that's our prayer for you, is that today would be the day of salvation for you, that today would be the day when you put your trust in Christ and in Christ alone, not in what you can do, but in what he has done. And if you do that, our God is a gracious Savior, and he will welcome you. He will forgive all of your sins. He will make you his beloved son or daughter, and you will have life eternal in him. And our prayer for you today is that you would receive that message and you'd put your trust in this Savior, the Savior who is willing to suffer unjustly so that you might be saved. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious Savior we have. And we see in verse 3 that the psalmist's concern was that he would not sin with his lips, with his words. He was concerned about more than that, though. He was also concerned that he would not sin against God with his heart, Look at the first part of verse 4. The psalmist says, Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Again, David is concerned about his heart who is on the, the inside, right? In the midst of his suffering, he wants his heart to be right before God. He wants to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. And he wants his heart to not be drawn away or turned away towards things that are unpleasing to God. And it was it was so important for him to guard his heart. It was so important for God to guard his heart. Why is it important for us to guard our hearts? Well, great David's greater son later told us the reason. We must guard our hearts because it's out of the heart that our actions flow. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. You see what's in your heart, like who you are on the inside? That's what comes out in your life. That's what people can see, so that a pure stream sends forth pure water, but a, a polluted stream sends forth dirty water. And so many people do not understand this. They think the problem is, is that I struggle with this sin or this sin, and if I can just stop doing this thing, then I'm going to be a good person. Friend, the problem isn't the fruit of your life. The problem is that from the root, there's corruption. And if the fruit's going to change, what has to happen is that the heart has to change. You have to become a new person. God has to give you a new heart. That's what salvation is. It's not some kind of outward determination. Hey, I think I'm going to be a Christian now. That's not what it is to become a Christian. To become a Christian is to receive a, a new heart, a clean heart, a heart of flesh that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. And God is a gracious God who gives that good gift. Friend, that's what's necessary. David had a, 
new heart. He had a good heart, and yet he knew that he needed God to help him to guard his heart so that he would not turn towards that which was evil or good or not good in the midst of unjust suffering. Notice the psalmist wanted help with more than the heart, though. Look at the end of verse 4. The psalmist says, Do not let me feast on their delicacies. And the word delicacy there speaks of, of kind of the foods and the pleasures that, that were the domain of the rich and the wealthy and the entitled. It means that those who were pursuing David, probably King Saul, and those with him were men of rank, men of notoriety, men of power and wealth. But David didn't want to be tempted by that power, by that notoriety, by that wealth. He did not want to participate in their wickedness. And so he asked the Lord to guard him so that his actions would be pleasing to the Lord, right? Even though he's running for his life, what is David's first concern? His first concern is that he would be pleasing to the Lord so that his words would be holy and his heart and his actions before God would be holy. But now notice it continues in verse 5, the first part of verse 5. You see that the psalmist also wanted wisdom. So he comes to the Lord. He's seeking wisdom here. In verse 5, what does he say? He says, let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Now, this is a very unusual sounding request in our day, where one of the prevailing virtues of our culture seems to be that you would never be offended by anybody. That that's the good life, that you can go through life with any, without anyone ever offending you. That's what you're looking for. Friend, you have to understand that that mindset is the opposite of wisdom. That's how you destroy yourself. If you want to go through life and never have anyone offend you at all, you're going to destroy yourself. The psalmist doesn't want that. What does he want? He wants wisdom. Actually, he wants someone who loves him enough to speak the truth in love, into his life. And sometimes that means a rebuke. Sometimes that means a word of correction. David was willing to be corrected so that he might have wisdom. There's really a beautiful illustration of this in his life. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, you read that, that David and his men, they were fleeing from Saul, and for a time they stayed uh, in an area where a man named Nabal had his flocks. He was a very wealthy man. And David, uh, he stayed by Nabal and by his flocks, and he actually kind of served as a wall around Nabal so that Nabal didn't lose anything, kind of protected him. And, and later on, David sent men to Nabal to ask him for food and provisions, which was a very culturally normal and appropriate thing for David to do. But Nabal did not return David's kindness with kindness. Instead, he railed against David and he mocked him. And what did David do? David strapped on his sword. Now, it is not a wise thing to rail against David. It's a mighty warrior, and he was ready to kill Nabal and every male in his house. That's what he was going to do. But then he was met by a woman named Abigail, Nabal's wife, who was wise and discerning. And what did she do? Well, she did bring provisions for David's men. But more than that, she also gently rebuked David and let him know in a very gracious way that there's a way for him to escape guilt and blood guiltiness by his desire to slay not only Nabal, but all the men in his house. How did David respond? What did he do? He blessed God. He blessed God for sending Abigail, who was wise and discerning. That rebuke was like oil for his head. Now there is such a good word for us again. By God's grace, we need people in our lives who love us enough 
that they're willing to rebuke us. Some people think rebuke means I get to tell you off because I'm right and you're wrong. That's not what that means. Who love you enough to speak the truth in love to you so that you see there's something wrong in my life and I need to turn away from this because this is folly and this will destroy me. No, no this, this brother or sister, they love me enough to, to point this out in my life so that I can turn away from that which would destroy me. So that they would grant me wisdom. I would receive wisdom in that way. The elders, they, they do that for me. I'm grateful for them. I, I think each one of those men love me enough to speak into my life. Some of you over the course of the years have gently rebuked me at times, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you for loving me enough to do that. Sadly, I do think some Christians do not understand the value of a godly rebuke. Uh, in pride and immaturity, they think that they're always right. And so they don't have ears to hear from others. And the problem is we all have blind spots. All of us have blind spots and we can't see. And so we need others around us who can see what we can't see and who can speak into our lives and call us away from that which is foolish and from that which would destroy us. Well, those that have that attitude of not wanting to hear, they get into a lot of trouble because here's the reason. Satan is a lot smarter than we are. And he can very easily lead us astray if we don't have people in our lives who love us enough to speak into our lives and help us turn from sin. The great reformer Martin Luther said, I rather that true and faithful teachers should rebuke and condemn me and reprove my ways than that hypocrites should flatter me and applaud me as a saint. So brother or sister, do you have someone in your life who loves you enough to rebuke you? Do you have someone in your life who cares enough that they're willing to risk the uncomfortable conversation in order to point you away from that which is foolish and from that which would destroy you towards that which would lead you to life and joy in Christ? If you don't, let me encourage you. Uh, you could find a friend like that in one of our community groups. I'd encourage you to seek that out. I'd encourage you to talk with an older man or woman who's followed Jesus a little bit longer and ask if they would be someone that would help you in that way. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 6, it's faithful are the wounds of a friend. That is something that's lost on our culture. It's something that must not be lost on our church. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's important. Notice the psalmist doesn't stop, though, with pursuing purity and wisdom. He also opposes the wicked. Look at the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. The psalmist says, even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words, for they are pleasing. What's David doing here? Right, right. His prayer is against the wicked. And that, of course, includes those who were unjustly persecuting and oppressing him. But he was, by saying this, he was both opposing the wicked and he was also publicly siding with God. He's letting God know that, he, that, that God has his allegiance he wanted all people to know that, that David followed God and he had no heart for wickedness. Uh, he did not delight in wickedness. Instead, David was confident that the wicked would ultimately be overthrown. I think that's what verse 6 is. Verse 6 seems to be something of a prophecy even of, of the fact that Saul and those who were with him would eventually be defeated by God. And when that happened, all who had seen it would know that David had been faithful to God and that his words had been true, that his words had been pleasing. 
And of course, that's precisely what happened. Think about it. When Saul and those with him were killed on Mount Gilboa as they fought against the Philistines, right after that time, the tribe of Judah comes and they make David king over Judah. And then seven years later, the rest of Israel also comes and makes David king. They understood that David represented God. They understood that David had been faithful and true. David wanted to be pleasing to God in his suffering. He kept his words pure. He kept his heart pure. He kept his actions pure. He pursued wisdom and he opposed the wicked in the midst of unjust suffering. And when the time was right, God exalted him as king over the people of Israel. So here's a word of encouragement for you, brother or sister, if you're going through a season of unjust suffering this morning. The God who delivered David after a decade of unjust suffering at the hands of King Saul will deliver you as well in his time. He will deliver you as well in his time. God is faithful. So keep your words pure and keep your heart pure and keep your actions pure and pursue wisdom and oppose wickedness. In short, humble yourself before God and seek to be pleasing to him and he will exalt you at the proper time. 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. A third point now. Pray for protection. Verse 7 to 10. Uh, David's life on the run from King Saul was a difficult one. Saul was not playing games. And to side in any way with David was a dangerous proposition because Saul was after you as well. One example of that was what King Saul did to the priest of Nob who had given David and his men bread. Well, Saul had his evil servant Doeg kill all of the priests of Nob along with their families for helping David. So is it any wonder in verse 7 that David laments the way he laments when he talks about the sufferings of those who were close to him? As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And is it any wonder that David ends the psalm the way he does in verses 8 to 10 when he asks the Lord to give him protection from his enemies? Look at verse 8 to 10. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Now here the psalmist really makes three separate requests and those three separate requests are really all focused on this one overarching need of God's protection from David's enemies. In verse 8, the psalmist asked the Lord not to let him die. So David knew that Saul intended to kill him but he knew that the Lord could prevent that and he asked the Lord to spare his life. In verse nine, David asked the Lord to protect him from the traps and snares that his enemies had placed for him. And then in verse 10, the psalmist asked the Lord to cause his enemies to be destroyed by their own traps, just as Haman would later be hung upon his own gallows when his own plot boomeranged back upon him. And when we face seasons of unjust suffering in our lives, one of the things we need to do is we need to pray and ask God to protect us because we're not able to protect ourselves, but he is. He's able to protect us. Our enemies are often stronger than us, aren't they? There will never be an enemy you face that's stronger than God. God is more than able to deliver you. Let me give you just one observation then from verse 9 before we conclude. Satan's traps 
are more deadly than the traps of men. In verse 9, the psalmist cries out and asks the Lord to deliver him from the traps of his enemies. We need to understand, though, that while men will at times plot against us, that's true, they will at times plot against us. We should be on guard against those plots. The most dangerous traps and snares we will ever face in this life are the spiritual ones that are set by our enemy, Satan. The traps of men are dangerous. They can cost us money, our homes, even our health. The traps of Satan... Those delicious-looking sins, those delicious-looking sins, the traps of Satan, they cost so much more. Just one sin can rob us of the assurance of salvation. Just one sin can disqualify us from serving the Lord in public ministry. Just one sin can cost us our marriage and our families. Just one sin can cause our conscience to condemn us for our folly. Just one sin can ruin our reputation before God's people. Just one sin can bring public reproach upon the name of Christ. And just one sin can lead us down a path of disobedience that leads to spiritual ruin. Anyone who wanders away does it one step at a time. Ray Ortland has a saying that I think is so important to keep in mind. Each of us are only five minutes away from moral and spiritual disaster. And that's true. Something we need to think about. Brothers and sisters, the point is we should not play with sin. Never believe the devil's lie that that little seeming temptation that he's dangling before you is not such a big deal after all. Because Satan spreads his table with delicious looking food, but it's all poisoned. And Satan comes to you like, like Joab came to a massa with his arms out as if to embrace him, but Satan has a, he has a knife behind his back with which to stab you. He's out for blood. So let's pray and ask the Lord to protect us from Satan's traps and snares. That, that's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then let's grow in our awareness of what those snares are. You know, Paul says we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. And that means we need to grow in our understanding what Satan's schemes are as well. One way you can do that is to read a book by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Some of you have read this together as a group in the church. It's a really good book. Uh, Brooks thought very long and hard about how it is that Satan tempts the people of God and about how it is that the truth of God's word protects God's people from those lies and deceptions of Satan. The book is well worth reading. Let's conclude. In, verse, in Psalm 141, David's facing unjust suffering. Uh, he had been persecuted, was being persecuted by men he had never wronged. As we go through life, many of us will face the same thing. How should we respond? Well, we should turn to God. And we should seek to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And we should pray for God's protection. So may God, may God help us as we face such seasons. And may we remember that because Jesus died, because he was willing to suffer unjustly in our place, the time is coming when we will live in a perfect world with him and we will never suffer unjustly again. Praise God for that. Let's pray.